I'm very pleased to be contributing again to the audiovisual library put together by the Codification Division of the Office of Legal Affairs of the UN Secretariat. Um, I have a very long connection with that, uh, that division and it's uh, great to be involved again. What I shall be talking about in this lecture is openness in international law, or transparency if you like. There's been a great deal of talk uh, over recent decades about freedom of information, about open government, about government in the sunshine. Um, much of that discussion has been at the national level, but it's also to be seen at the regional level and internationally. And, and the demand is made in terms of uh, dem democracy and uh, public participation, uh, the wider involvement of those who are go going to be subject to law and government uh, in the making of the policy and in calling those responsible, those with the power to account. Now internationally it's not a new thing. If you go back um, 95 years to the towards the end of the First World War, the Great War, President Woodrow Wilson produced his 14 points. Uh, it, apparently this, this number led to a comment by um, uh, Georges Clemenceau, his uh, French counterpart, that, that even the good Lord needed only ten. But anyway, uh, the first of those points was open covenants openly arrived at. And what that was aimed at was uh, secret diplomacy and secret treaties, which were seen by some as having been a major factor in the breakdown of uh, European public order in the lead-up to the Great War. Now, the first part of that, in a way, isn't too difficult. Um, treaties, once concluded, should be published. They should be made available. And that uh, proposal, in fact, led in the preparation of the Covenant of the, Council of the League of Nations to a provision requiring the registration and then the publication of treaties. You'll find uh, very good lectures related to that by Annabeth Rosenboom on the uh, website. She was once head of the uh, uh, treaty section in the United Nations Secretariat. The other half is more difficult. Um, treaties negotiated publicly, is that really possible? There are stories about, uh, about uh, Wilson at uh, Versailles being locked in his study with just two of the other leaders of their states with, with a marine marching up and down outside with a fixed bayonet, keeping out uh, anybody, including members of the American delegation from Wilson's uh, offices. Uh, but it is the case that, and I'll talk about this towards the end, it is the case that treaties are more and more part of public debate as they're being prepared. Uh, and in fact, if you go back to 1919 and look at the constitution of the International Labour Organization, you will find there uh, a provision already, a constitution already, that is tripartite. The, that organisation, which is responsible now for over 150 international labour conventions, uh, it provides for a tripartite membership. In addition to government representatives, uh, there are representatives of the workers, of the unions, and representatives of the employers. And it is that composite body, that tripartite body, that puts together the agenda and then through various public sessions prepares the drafts and finally adopts the conventions and later on may get to revise them. So even at the outset, um, while 
a lot of diplomacy remained secret, while a lot of negotiation was private, it was the case that uh, a good part of international relations were becoming more and more open, partly assisted by the development of non-governmental organisations, which became increasingly active during the 19th and then into the 20th century. Uh, and so you got the peace movement and the anti-slavery movement and so on, and as well as labour movements and uh, various other movements promoting causes. One of the, one of the very early um, major international organisations, the International Committee of the Red Cross, had conferences at which uh, NGOs were involved. Um, soon after that, there's the International Council of Nurses, uh, the Inter International Council of Women, the Institut Adouin International, the International Law Association, and so on. So with modern communications as they were then, there was more and more participation. But uh, a good deal of uh, diplomacy did remain secret and has to this day. I'll come back to that as the third of my instances. I'm going to mention three um, concrete situations to try to give this uh, a bit more of a concrete feel. Uh, the first of them is epidemics or hazardous activities causing uh, transboundary harm. Second, I'll say something about access to information in the course of litigation, international litigation. And thirdly, as I've indicated, I'll come back briefly to treaty making, not just treaty publication, but treaty making. Now, just a word before I do that in terms of the relevant uh, principles, the relevant propositions. On the one side, you've got all these arguments for greater openness, democracy, participation, accountability, as I mentioned earlier. On the other side, you've got proper concerns about privacy, about confidentiality, about uh, industrial secrets, about national secrets, about national security. Um, and as well now, we've got the great concerns caused, as well as the great advantages, resulting from the flood of information <clears throat> through modern technology with all the prospects of uh, people's uh, private thoughts and private activities uh, being invaded through this amazing new technology. So there are considerations against uh, greater openness. There's, there's a great few lines uh, in one of, one of uh, T.S. Eliot's poems, which I should read because otherwise I'll butcher it, in which, um, this, and this is back in the 1930s, uh, you've got that great Anglo-American poet fearing that <clears throat> we face the endless cycle of idea and action. Endless invention, endless experiment, brings knowledge of motion but not of stillness, knowledge of speech but not of silence, knowledge of words and ignorance of the word, with of course a capital W. And then he said, and this is a real warning against uh, uh, all the information that's available to us, where is, the <clears throat> where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge, where is the knowledge we have lost in information? So take care when uh, you open all those marvellous websites that uh, you might be overwhelmed with information, you may uh, lose the um, wood for the trees, you may not even be a good soil scientist. You, you may not even be able to see the tree. Uh, so you have to uh, keep this broader perspective. Now, if I can come to my three topics, and the first of them I mentioned was epidemics, and this is a, a subset, really, of uh, 
hazardous things happening in a particular country that have transboundary consequences. Now these hazardous activities may be perfectly lawful, uh, but there might nevertheless be questions about what a state must do if the activity within its country, not in breach of international law, is threatening uh, the rights and interests of others. <clears throat> For a long while now, one of the major areas of concern in relation to that has been epidemics, uh, going back some hundreds of years, and, and there have been sanitary regulations of one kind or another and quarantine requirements in many countries over a very long period. Uh, over the years, the international community has prepared international health regulations. Those of 1969 were concerned with cholera, uh, yellow fever, and one other um, terrible disease. Uh, and the concern started to arise that uh, identifying these three was not good enough because there were new um, uh, problems arising, new epidemics, new bugs that were creating themselves or being discovered. And so in 2005, the World Health Assembly adopted uh, the international health regulations. These were adopted by a majority, a three-quarters majority of the World Health Assembly after a lot of preparation. And relatively unusually for international obligation, those regulations became, became, bound, became binding on all members of the World Health Organization, 194 I think at the time, um, unless they objected. Two states did object on one particular matter or another, but they quite quickly became bound following the procedures laid down in the uh, regulations. So here we have this uh, really rather rapid piece of international lawmaking requiring all states, um, members of the World Health Organization, requiring all of those states to take care that they have good surveillance capacity, that they strengthen it, that they have a good idea of what's going on in terms of public health in their, in their countries. They have an obligation, <clears throat> if there is a public health emergency, which is likely to threaten the international community, likely to go over its borders, to notify the World Health Organization and, if appropriate, the International Atomic Energy Agency. Now, you might ask, why that second agency? Well, the reason is the kind of problem that was created by the meltdown uh, of the nuclear facilities in Chernobyl, where there was a great deal of concern and a great deal of uh, outflow of radiation and so on, of radioactive material, and, <clears throat> and some concerns in neighbouring countries about the consequence. Now, these obligations to notify our obligations that apply at once, uh, bearing in mind the delays that there have been at times in, uh, in communication by countries that want to hide the fact that something horrible is happening in terms of public health problems. So there is now this major obligation. There is an obligation to continue to communicate. There's an obligation to cooperate with the World Health Organization and so on. Uh, there is a recognition there that here is a problem that requires very good information and full information. Because it's interesting to compare the obligations there with the obligations found in some environmental treaties, for instance, or in the, the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, 
where there are sometimes limits in respect of national security or in respect of um, industrial secrets, industrial confidences and so on. No such exception in the case of the uh, international health regulations. <clears throat> now, those regulations and the um, provisions to be found uh, in other environmental treaties and trade treaties of the kind that I've mentioned are to be put into a broader context of a very interesting piece of work that was done over some time by the International Law Commission on international liability for actions which are not themselves unlawful but which may, as in those cases, have effects on other states. And you'll find a number of texts prepared th through the 80s and 90s uh, into, the, into early 2000 coming out of the International Law Commission about those matters. And there you find a broader statement of some of the principles that um, I've been talking about uh, requiring <coughs> disclosure, requiring good information, um, but uh, in that case, because it's a general text, also saying that there is a limit in respect of national security and the like. But in the more confined context of the health regulations, the World Health Organization considered that um, that exception was not to be included. So there's one instance of international law requiring information, requiring good information, requiring prompt information so that those individuals affected and the neighbouring states and other states affected uh, are put on proper notice and so that if necessary the World Health Organisation can take appropriate steps uh, as, as it has from time to time under those regulations. This is a very live uh, active um, area of law especially with more and more people flying around the world and carrying bugs with them, unfortunately, in, in, in the course of international travel. Now my second topic was access in the course of litigation, in the course of court proceedings, to information which one party or another, say a, someone accused of a very serious international crime, wants something, say from a foreign government, or wants something, say from the International Committee of the Red Cross, which they claim will uh, assist their defence, or it might be the prosecutor wants, wants this information. And these, in, these questions can arise as well in non-criminal litigation, in investment disputes, say, uh, or, in, or in actions <coughs> in national courts as well, uh, in actions relating to alleged terrorist activities and so on. Now, over many, many years, national courts have had to deal with these issues, and they've faced the, the real challenge that on the one side uh, litigants should have equal rights to present their cases, they should have access to information, they should have access to relevant material that might be held by the other side or might be held by a third party. Uh, and, and so what happens in that situation? What sort of procedures do you have? What sort of rules do you have? Uh, what sort of review process do you have if there's a refusal by the people who are holding the information? Well, that issue arose um, uh, in, um, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War in the very first case that was heard in this court, in the International Court of Justice, the Corfu Channel case, where the um, Albanian uh, government, uh, proceedings between it and uh, the United Kingdom, wanted access to certain uh, 
documents on the British side. There was in the pleading a reference to documents called with the letters XCU, which turned out to mean Exercise Corfu. Uh, the British said those documents were naval secrets, they could not be disclosed. The court then, like the court now, had no power to compel production. It did in fact ask for the documents uh, and the British government, following a lot of debate in London, which has been written up recently uh, in, in a very valuable article, uh, following a lot of debate, said no, they're naval secrets, we will not disclose them. The court could take no further action and in fact did not draw any kind of adverse inference. Now, that particular incident gives rise to a very interesting question of professional ethics. Uh, there were exchanges within the British government which said uh, we wouldn't, in national litigation, withhold from the other side a document which we thought was helpful to them. But then there's this worrying line um, to the effect that uh, for king and country or something like that, um, that's, that's the kind of judgment that's being made. So there was a good deal of anxiety in the United Kingdom. It's interesting now that the documents are available to see that they didn't really involve na naval secrets and that, if anything, they would have assisted the United Kingdom. So there's a bit of a lesson there about um, what steps should be taken. If, if you look at a lot of parts of the common law world, at least, I can't speak for others, at, at that time, back uh, in the 40s into the 50s, uh, you would find that position being taken quite widely in national litigation. If a minister filed a certificate saying, you can't have these documents, the uh, court would say, uh, yes, um, we agree, we can't question the minister, uh, and that's it. Now, there were developments, um, the, uh, there were practical developments in a number of jurisdictions, and quite quickly in the 1950s and 60s, the court started to assert the power to review the minister's decision and started to cut back the range of documents that were allegedly subject to this, um, this protection. So the, the law has moved on and moved on a good way, but there are still very serious issues which continue to arise in national courts, uh, and especially as I touched on earlier in cases involving terrorism, where the national security argument will be made by the state and then there is a very serious question, which I'll come back to in a moment, about what a court does in that situation if documents which appear to be relevant are not handed over. Now, coming back to the international situation, that matter has come before this court again um, in, in the case some years ago now between Bosnia and Serbia, <clears throat> where there was disagreement within the court about what should happen when uh, Serbia had refused to hand over certain documents, or was not willing to hand over certain documents. I can say there was a disagreement in the court because it's there on the court's records. If you look at the judgment, you'll find uh, the court saying one thing and then you'll find some judges disagreeing um, in that case. So that's another case, um, and, and these cases, I imagine, will continue to arise. They give rise to a question which was considered in another more recent case between Djibouti and France, about how far a court can properly go in any event in questioning the assessment by those who hold the information, governments or whoever it might be, that say national security would be threatened if this information is to be released. Well, as I've indicated, national courts have got more robust about that. And in the international area, you find decisions of the 
uh, International Criminal Tribunal for former Yugoslavia. You find rules within the International Criminal Court which attempt to address this issue where a state might say, we can't uh, release this information, we can't release this document because it would be a breach of national security. It would threaten national security or something of that kind. Um, and, and you'll find uh, in, the, in some of the practice of some of, the, of those courts and tribunals uh, and in their rules, uh, developing ideas about how, how to handle that. There's a recognition that sometimes the state interest will prevail uh, and then, as I said before, there's a question of what happens next, and I will mention that, mention one or two possibilities in respect of that in a moment. Um, but let me mention another example that arises in those courts and tribunals, and that's in respect of the uh, position of the International Committee of the Red Cross. For many, many decades now, going way back to the end of the 19th century, that um, organisation in pursuit of its humanitarian purpose, has been visiting uh, people who are detained, prisoners of war, civilians who are detained, and, and they do that on the basis that they must always have the right to come back and see the same people. They must always be able to do that in private without the um, host country, the holding country, the detaining country having representatives there. They must be able to bring medical supplies. They must be able to make medical assessments and so on. Now, in the course of that process, they obviously will sometimes find evidence of, of dreadful things having happened, of torture and so on and so on. Um, what is the story then if, uh, say, somebody involved in litigation wants the um, ICRC delegate, say a retired delegate who no longer is subject to the discipline of the ICRC, to come along and give evidence about what did or didn't happen in terms of alleged acts of torture and so on. Well, the International Committee of the Red Cross has always taken the position that these contacts are absolutely confidential. They will not break that confidence. Um, every so often there are leaks, um, but not, so far as I'm aware, from within the ICRC. And, and it's interesting that the Yugoslav Tribunal on one occasion and the rules of the International Criminal Court actually provide very substantial protection to the ICRC. Uh, in, in the case of the ICC rules, you'll find a process is developed uh, within those rules, not yet applied I think, under which there can be toing and froing between the requesting party, uh, the ICRC and the court to see whether some of the information could be released without damaging the ICRC's interests. But there you get an instance of confidentiality, of a confidential relationship being preferred uh, to the pursuit of truth. And, and there's a great statement from a long while ago now, 150 years ago at, at least, um, by a British judge, recently quoted in English litigation relating to torture, which says, the pursuit of truth is not always a good thing. Sometimes it can be pursued too far. Sometimes it can be pressed too far. And if you think of the ticking bomb scenario that people sometimes talk about and the notion that uh, judges could give warrants um, to find, to, to provide for torture uh, and uh, to find the ticking bomb, I think you've got a good instance. I was a national judge for a good while and I was very pleased that we didn't ever have legislation that uh, purported to give me authority to issue a warrant to torture somebody so that the ticking bomb could uh, 
could could be found. I mean, that's uh, an impossible situation to contemplate, but it's something that some scholars have seriously written about. Well, no way, so far as I can see. Um, one absolute prohibition in international law is on torture, and evidence obtained by those means um, is, uh, in general, completely excluded from court litigation. Now, um, I could talk about more instances of this sort of problem, but I, I said a couple of times, what happens if in the end the information isn't provided? Well, one possibility is that, say in the case of a criminal trial, the trial might have to just end. Um, it may not be possible for it to be continued on the basis that, uh, in fairness to the accused, this information appears on the face of it to be critical, but it just can't be made available for these national security reasons. And it is well known that from time to time uh, lit criminal prosecutions are not brought for that kind of reason, that, uh, that, that the prosecuting authorities' best witnesses are individuals under deep cover or something of that kind, and they just can't uh, be exposed to the public glare. So in that case, you've got the prosecution, you've got the state making that assessment. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that the litigation might be carved back um, in some way so that uh, the indictment no longer covers that kind of area. So there are various practical things that can be done, and as I indicated as well, there's the um, developing practice of toing and froing of exchanges between the interested parties to see just whether some of the documentation, some of the information might be able to be made available. Now my third and last instance uh, relates to treaty making and I mentioned earlier that uh, uh, private negotiations, secret negotiations are sometimes obviously going to be essential to the development of a, an agreement. But as the ILO example shows and many others over many decades show, sometimes there can be much greater openness. And this openness can apply right from the beginning. Sometimes the initiative for the negotiation might come from, uh, from the private sector, from NGOs, from civil society. If you think in recent years of the, uh, uh, of the Ottawa Agreement relating to landmines or the cluster munitions agreement, there you have instances where there was great reluctance um, within the official system to having negotiations about that. It was not something that was popular, say, within the conference on uh, disarmament. Um, so it was in those cases initiatives taken by NGOs and with uh, strong support and with leadership from particular countries that led to that to those items getting on the international agenda and, and uh, some of the horrific scenes seen around the world and some very prominent NGO supporters um, helped uh, with uh, those uh, treaties being prepared. Sometimes the um, the role of uh, the public, the role of civil society might be a blocking one. Quite some years ago now there was a major initiative to try to get a multi multilateral agreement on investment, uh, a sort of generalisation of the great number of bilateral investment treaties that are to be found around the world. That particular initiative um, was stopped by public opinion, by civil society, by vigorous opposition. Then as the text gets developed, there will be major roles increasingly for NGOs. It's one way in which the 
international lawmaking process has changed greatly to be seen, just to give one other example, in, in the work on preparing the statute of the International Criminal Court and in, and in the follow-up negotiations relating to that court, its, its um, rules and uh, protocols and so on, the recent um, negotiations relating to aggression, for instance. And then <clears throat> it is still important, though, that that there is wide public involvement in the process of national acceptance of treaties. That's something that has developed quite extensively recently in recognition that uh, a good deal of law is being made out there, it's being made in the international community. It's not just a matter for national legislatures. So there are three examples of, <clears throat> of uh, greater openness, greater transparency in international law, and I should try to finish with just one or two lessons, I suppose, coming out of this. One, one is that, as in so many areas of international law, and national law for that matter, there's a great amount to be learned from looking across the fence. Indeed, there's not a serious fence, as I see the law. The law is designed to look after the interests of individuals. Um, it's it's uh, a product, after all, of hu human imagination and human endeavour. And the fact that some of it's called international and some of it's called uh, the law of The Hague or the law of uh, South Holland or, or the law of the Netherlands or European law doesn't actually matter a great deal. It's uh, designed to control and regulate in various ways uh, human endeavour, the wise restraints that make us free, someone or other said once about, uh, about the law. Um, so <clears throat> look across uh, legal systems and see what can be got from others. Uh, second, um, don't just work at the level of high principle. It's not good enough just to talk about freedom of information or privacy. You've got to start focusing in the particular detail. You've got to look to the um, devil of the detail. But don't, in doing that, uh, get lost uh, from the um, bigger picture, from the wider principles. And, and third, think of uh, sensible processes. Who's going to make the decisions? Um, what procedures are they going to follow? What possible opportunities might there be for review? And so on. So there's um, a great deal of thinking to be done in these areas, uh, both generally um, by, by scholars and within governments and, and within the wider community, uh, and a great deal to be learned from uh, the experiences of different places and different parts of the world. Uh, thank you for your attention.